Amen. Please be seated. Once again, good morning. It is good to be here this morning. It is good to be back. Last Lord's Day was providentially hindered from being here and um, you were providentially blessed with a wonderful sermon by Pastor Tyler. And so God is good to us. And he continues to pour out his blessings upon us. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the first few verses in Ephesians chapter 2. You know, I originally thought I could make it through verse 10 of this chapter, but then as I was in my preparations, there's so much involved in this text here that I would not be doing it justice trying to speed through just to get to a certain mark. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. I know it's not really a good break there, but next week, Lord willing, if I'm back here preaching again, uh, we will kind of back up and maybe go verses 4 through 10 uh, to kind of keep the smooth uh, transition of the, the text going. What this is is verses 1 through 10 of the book of Ephesians is Paul setting forth after a wonderful first chapter of the great and glorious things of God and who we are in Christ. He sets a contrast of who we were, more specifically who the Ephesian Christians were before their conversion, and then what God has done and in intervening on their behalf. And then he finishes out going through verse 10 by not only what has God done, but how God has done it and why God has done it. And so we will try to look at that first portion this morning, the contrast, uh, depravity contrasted with God's grace. And we will see in the passage that grace overcomes the depravity. As the apostle wrote, the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. The doctrine of total or radical depravity was not an idea that John Calvin dreamed up. It was first articulated, at least in a systematic way, by Augustine of Hippo. And that was in refutation of the Pelagian heresy. But Augustine was not the first to see this doctrine in Scripture. You know, a lot of times when we add names to our, our, our beliefs, it kind of gives us the idea that, oh, for so many hundreds and hundreds of years we didn't see this, but, you know, thank God for John Calvin. Well, he wasn't the one that dreamed up the doctrine of total depravity. It wasn't even Augustine. The early church fathers of the first through fourth centuries understood this to be the teaching of Holy Scripture although there was not yet any need to put a label on it. They simply used the language of Scripture, such as we see in our passage today. The Apostle Paul wrote extensively about the depraved nature of fallen mankind. 
But yes, you guessed it. He was not the first. Jesus spoke of this fallen nature. He spoke of the total inability of fallen mankind to see the kingdom of God or to come to Him, to come to Christ. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I want you to notice the words, cannot and can. This is a term of ability, not permission. Everyone has permission to come to Christ. As a matter of fact, everyone is commanded to come to Christ. But they lack the ability. Why? Because of their depraved nature. But the doctrine of total depravity goes back farther than even the teachings of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the first person to write about this doctrine of depravity was who? Moses. Moses writes in the book of Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If that is not a biblical statement of total depravity, we don't have one. We have many passages that speak to the total depravity of mankind, and Paul will paint a wonderful, uh, excuse me, horrific picture of what that looks like in our passage today. But here in Genesis, we have the, the summation of what total depravity is. Every thought and intention of your thoughts, of your motivations, everything about you is evil, only evil, and that continually. And so, total depravity of mankind goes all the way back to the garden, does it not? To the fall, when Adam sinned thus plunging all of creation into the death-bringing curse of sin. The context of our passage, I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul does not start this letter to the Ephesians with how we start. You know, we have the five points. We always start with total depravity. Paul doesn't start there. He doesn't start with total depravity. But rather with the great doctrines of election, atonement, and preserving grace. He is now going to contrast the present reality of who the Ephesian Christians are in Christ Jesus to who they were before their regeneration. But dear ones, this is just not limited to the Ephesian Christians. This is the state of all mankind before Christ or outside of Christ. Trusting that God would answer His prayers for them thus granting them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God, Paul now seeks to flesh out for them the glorious reality of what God has wrought in their lives. He has given them the reality of who they are in Christ, and now he's going to show them how they got there, what God has done to make this reality a reality. It is my hope and prayer that if you are here today and you are still unconverted, that you will see the horrific condition you are in and the unspeakable eternal horrors that await you. 
I pray that God will, with the very same power that raised Jesus from the grave, transform you from being a child of wrath to a child of the eternal King. And that God, that He will rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and bring you into His glorious kingdom of light. I pray if you are today present and you are regenerate, that your walk with Christ will be strengthened your love for Him greatly increased, and that your witness for Him will be courageous and continuous. Most of all, I pray that in whatever happens here today, King Jesus will be greatly magnified and glorified. With having said that, if you would turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, let us read the first few verses of this passage together. And keep in mind, as Pastor Tyler said when he was reading our scripture reading, this is the word of the living God. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, our great and glorious God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have, before the foundations of the world, covenanted with yourself, to redeem a people. And so, Father, today we pray that you would pour out your great grace upon us, that you would enlighten us to your word, that you would show us our great need of Christ, and that you would pour out your salvation richly because of your great love. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Total or radical depravity. Now what does that mean? I want to tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that we are absolutely as bad as we can ever be. We could all be worse. Were it not for the restraining grace of God, we all have the propensity to make Hitler look like a choir boy. Say We can't look at others around us and say, well, <laughs> I'm not as bad as that person. By the grace of God, I'm not as bad as that person. So total depravity is not absolute depravity. Total depravity is just that every part of and portion of me, body and soul, mind and will, is under the influence, 
the enslaving influence of sin. So that's what it means to be totally depraved. You can have a wonderful, kind, gentle personality. You can be very charitable, giving to the poor and helping your neighbor. Those used to be character traits sought out when we were kids, at least when I was a kid, you know, we were taught that that's how you should act towards others. You can be all of those things and, and still be depraved, still be lost. Most, a lot of times when we think of total depravity, we think of people that are horrific, mass murderers, rapists, and, and the like. And we wouldn't think of um, that grandma that lives on the corner that hands out cookies to the school children as being depraved, would we? But Scripture defines depravity differently than we do. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice past tense here. Were dead. Once walked. Paul is contrasting a former reality to a present reality. A former condition to a present condition. Paul here gives the Ephesian church a picture of the unregenerate. Or as I'd like to call them, the walking dead. They are spiritually dead. Physically alive, yes, but spiritually dead. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that you were once sick in sin. No, the, the condition is much more horrific than that. More serious than that. Sickness is bad enough. But death is worse. It doesn't get any worse than death, does it? And you were dead. Spiritually dead. Paul is not offering a medicine like he's a doctor here to, to help you get well. You don't need a doctor. You don't need medicine. You need the omnipotent God creator of all that exists to give you spiritual life. You are dead. What can a dead man do? Nothing. Or as uh, Dr. Lawson puts it, stink. <laughs> and he, of course, references Lazarus. So for the unbeliever, those whom Paul is talking to in Ephesus who were former unbelievers, they were dead. They were completely helpless in their spiritual condition. But the Bible also uses other terms to describe the unbeliever. So you see, the unbeliever is not just spiritually dead. The unbeliever is also spiritually blind and deaf. Romans 11.8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. 
So your problem is you're blind and deaf. And dead sums it up, right? Can a dead person see? Can they hear? No. Does a dead person possess knowledge in the body? No. The unbeliever is spiritually ignorant. Romans 1, Paul unfolds that very clearly. He writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The unbeliever is spiritually ignorant. And as we're told in other places, they cannot discern the things of God. That's a serious condition, is it not? Then Paul goes on to describe the results of this spiritual deadness. What has taken place? Or or what, what does this cause people to do? He writes, That you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world. I think Pastor Tyler preached a very wonderful sermon last week on what that looks like, following the course of this world. The idea put forth here is one of simply going with the flow. I think of water. Water always takes the path of least resistance. We live in a fallen, sin-filled world where in our day not only is sin tolerated, it is celebrated and even expected. To live A nice, quiet, easy life in this society. You have to live like everyone else around you. Right? Otherwise you're a hater. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. Don't make waves. Don't rock the boat. You know, Jesus warned about the this following the course of this world, did he not? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. Matthew seven thirteen. I don't need to expound on that because Pastor Tyler did a good job last week on that text. But I want to say this. When we see things repeated in Scripture, what does that generally tell us? We should pay attention. You know, Jesus did that often. Verily, verily. Truly, truly. To get people's attention. Now we have two Proverbs. 14.12 and 16.25 that both say the exact same thing. That's repeated, is it? So it's important. Let's see what it says. They both say this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's what it looks like, following the course of this world. It's like a great big party barge on this big, broad river. And everybody's in this boat. And they don't have to do anything. Just enjoy life. Let the current do the work. Not realizing that eventually this 
party barge is going to go over a giant waterfall to the destruction of all on board. That's what Jesus said about the broad way. Its end is the way of death and destruction. This, if you are an unbeliever, is the course you are following. You are still following the course of this world. And it doesn't have a good ending. But they weren't just following. That wasn't just the end of the story. They were just going along. Going with the flow. They're also following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now this is a harder one because a lot of people will argue as unbelievers I don't worship Satan. I don't worship Satan. How can you say that I'm following him? The Ephesian Christians prior to their conversion were following Satan. We know that in the reality that many of their worship idol worship was nothing more than sensuality, right? Doing things that we would say are contrary to the will, the revealed will of God. That's the reality for all unbelievers. If you are an unbeliever, you are following after Satan. Period. You don't have to be formally involved in devil worship, sacrificing animals or people or whatever. But you are following after Satan if you are an unbeliever. You know, Jesus warned about this when he was speaking with the Pharisees. The unbelieving Pharisees. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Unbeliever, that's the reality for you right now, today. Whether you believe it or not. Whether you think so or not. Not only are you following the course of this world, but you are following after Satan. And we know what ends up, where Satan ends up. Paul continues, among whom we all once lived. Notice now the, the, the personal pronoun changes. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul changes the personal pronouns here from you and your to we and we all. He now includes himself in this indictment. So the Jews aren't safe, are they? How could a devout Pharisee, <clears throat> one who prided himself in his devotion to God and his devotion to God's law, <clears throat> be included with a bunch of Gentile sinners? I think it would be safe to say that the Apostle Paul, even before his conversion, 
never went into a pagan temple and, and participated in that type of worship. As a matter of fact, he probably would, he wouldn't even go into a pagan's house, let alone their temple. But he says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What does he mean by that? Well, before Paul was converted, what was his faith grounded in? He said his faith was grounded in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament scriptures, right? But was it really? If you take a close look at the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes and those who, who were the teachers of Israel, what was their faith really in? Their flesh. Their ability to follow man's laws. <laughs> because that's what they did with God's laws, is just made them a bunch of man's laws. And they prided themselves in keeping. That's, a, that's an act of the flesh. And so Paul was serving the flesh. The desires of the flesh and the mind. And, and he says, just like everyone else. Just like all of mankind. There's that statement again. That, that sweeping statement. That includes Jews and Gentiles alike. Since the unbeliever is following the course of this evil world and following Satan who influences their every thought, it is only natural then that they should act out their sinful ways. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the mind. It is their nature. And that's what Paul says next. And we're by nature. Now he's going to speak of the nature, the depraved nature. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Turn, turn in your Trinity hymnal to page 673. Unless you have a copy of the confession, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 6 in our confession and this speaks to the, the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment. And this helps us see a little bit more our, our nature, the, the nature of fallen man. I'm just going to read chapter. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to do a lot of time in commenting on this, but I'm going to read several of the chapters. Paragraph 1, excuse me, several of the paragraphs. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who, without any compulsion, did willfully transgress the law of their creation, and the command given unto them, in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. 
Paragraph 2. Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and bodies. And, and now we won't read the, the rest of the chapter, but I want to read the first part of paragraph 3. They being the root, and by God's appointment standing in the room and stead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and corruption, corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. There's two ideas put forth there. The imputation of guilt and the corrupt nature conveyed. Adam's guilt. What does that mean? Adam's guilt. When we think of the doctrine of imputation, we think of the, the doctrine that our, our sins were imputed to Christ and His righteousness is imputed to us. But, but what does that mean? Adam's guilt was imputed to us. What that means is this. Had you been born spiritually neutral and had you been able to go through life without committing a sin, you're still guilty. Because you're represented in your federal head. And his guilt is imputed to you. How hopeless is that? See, even if you could be perfect, you're guilty. <clears throat> but you're not perfect and you're not able to be perfect. Because there's a second part of that. Not only was the guilt imputed but the corrupt nature conveyed. In other words, passed down from generation to generation to generation through the seed of man. And it's very important that we understand why the doctrine of the virgin birth is important. Because Christ did not get that corrupted nature conveyed like the rest of mankind did. And Christ died for the first part of that, for Adam's guilt imputed to us, along with our sins. Paul writes about this, this guilt that, Adam, that was imputed to us. He writes, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And I know some people like to think, well, that's not fair. You don't want what's fair. You want what's gracious and merciful. Our confession continues, and corrupted nature conveyed to all posterity, descended to them by ordinary generation. That's an important term, ordinary generation. Christ was not conceived by ordinary generation. So this nature was not conveyed to Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, In Adam all die. And so prior to conversion, we were by nature children of wrath. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a child of wrath? Just to be an angry person? 
This is not talking about your wrath, but the wrath of God. It's not talking about... It's, what it is saying is that you're under God's wrath. You have that to look forward to. It means your biggest problem is not sin. I'll say that again. It means your biggest problem is not sin. Your biggest problem as an unbeliever, the one that should terrify you, the one that should keep you awake at night, the one that should cause you to flee to Christ, your biggest problem as an unbeliever is God. He is your enemy. He is your biggest problem. He's the one that you should worry about. He's the one that you should fear. Sinclair Ferguson writes, As Christians, we are comforted by the thought that if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.32, right? But what if the reverse is true? What if God is not for us? What if God is against us? Ferguson writes, Then it matters little who is for us. We are in eternal danger. End quote. The Bible warns it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31 What then is this divine wrath? Well, in a word, it is hell. Hell is the physical, eternal manifestation of God's wrath against Satan and his angels and against all unbelievers. The Bible describes hell in several ways. It describes hell as outer darkness. Matthew 8, 11 through 12. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible likens hell to a fiery furnace. Matthew 13. So, it will be at the end of the age that angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible calls hell the eternal fire. Once again in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 25, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire fire prepared for the devil and his angels you're starting to get the picture of of what it means to be a child of wrath what you have to look forward to finally the bible gives the image of hell as a burning lake doesn't sound like any vacation does it a burning lake But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8 Hell is not a vacation. Hell is no picnic. Hell is not some huge party for all the unbelievers to revel in their sins forever. No, hell is a horrific, torturous punishment. Hell is forever. 
There is no time off for good behavior. There is no early release. There is no commuted sentence. There is no presidential pardon. There is no relief from the torment. Hell is the just punishment of all of God's enemies. It is eternal, everlasting, never-ending, forever. Paul says this condition plagues all of the human race. If we are all children of wrath, what hope do we have? Well, let's remember the context of this passage, dear ones. Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus and states that for the believer, this is no longer their present reality, but a past condition. Paul goes on to explain that in the lives of believers, a divine intervention has taken place. And we come to this wonderful conjunction. This is your reality before Christ. This is all you have to look forward to as a child of wrath. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What a beautiful verse of Scripture. What a contrast. We have taken all the horrors of hell and, and put it out in one black umbrella and then contrasted the beautiful light and the diamond in the rough of the, the gem of unspeakable worth, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Calvin, excuse me, Curtis Vaughn writes, Paul has shown that sin and death and wrath are the common experience of the unregenerate. Whether they are Jews like himself or Gentiles like his readers. Against that dark background, he will now show the wealth of divine grace and love and what these have done for persons who have put their trust in Christ. Dear ones, I want you to see this great love that Paul speaks of here. God's love indeed is a great love because he says right here, because of the great love with which he loved us. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a great love. What a great love love God's love is a, is a giving love for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life John 3:16 Ephesians 5:25 Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her it is a great love it is a giving love it is a saving love. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It is a saving love. By grace you have been saved. It is a powerful love. Turn with me, if you will, to to the book of Romans, chapter 8. You know where I'm going with this. It's a powerful love. Chapter 8, starting in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is a powerful love. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And last, it is a gracious, life-giving love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He, God, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved what a great and superabundant grace is ours in Christ Jesus hell does not have to be that reality that you look forward to flee to Christ This superabundant grace, in the words of Paul, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Dear one, if you think your sin is too great for God, think again. His grace is greater than your sin. Not just your one sin, but all of your sins. Sin is vile and disgusting. All it can bring is death and destruction. You may enjoy it for a season, but you will regret it for all eternity. Unless God intervenes on your behalf. Child of God, we were raised with Christ Jesus to walk in newness of life. We ought to walk accordingly. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper here today, Let us keep these great truths at the forefront of our minds. What exactly this represents. What exactly it is that we've been rescued from. And by whom we have been rescued. No, the blood of Christ is no longer flowing. But its effects will flow throughout all eternity. His body is no longer broken. But we will enjoy the benefits for all eternity. 
It is because of the redeeming work of Christ Jesus by the elective purposes of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are now, even now, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Reigning with Him as we await the final culmination of God's great and glorious plan of redemption. As we look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb when the bride and her bridegroom will be eternally together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this table, cause us to see your grace. Cause us to experience it all the more. Cause us to experience uh, the grace, your grace, in our lives anew and afresh this very day. Cause us to sing your praises and glorify your holy name for this wonderful grace that is ours in Christ. Father, please make this the reality in every heart here today. I ask you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you would stand with me now, if you're able, and let's sing hymn number 245 as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Excuse me. 364 as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. 364.